Well, good evening, Hallows Church. My name is Jeff, and it's my privilege and my pleasure to serve as one of the pastors of our church. Uh, my attention and my energy and my time is focused primarily up at our North, uh, North Expression. Uh, we settled into our new home a few months back in Edmonds, and uh, things are going well. God has been gracious towards us, but it's always good to be back here with you in Fremont in this way as we open our Bibles together. Uh, today we'll be covering uh, a pretty big piece of text, three chapters in the book of Judges, Judges chapters 10 to 12. So head over there in that direction if you'd like to track along uh, this afternoon with me. Now, one sun, uh, rainy Sunday morning, David was driving through his neighborhood in, in his uh, little two-seat car. He was on his way to church. And as he pulled up to a stoplight that morning, he could see uh, the bus stop out ahead of him, a block down the road, and he could see three figures at that bus stop, huddling close together, sitting under a single umbrella as the rain was coming down on them. And David recognized each person at that bus stop. They were all familiar to him. They all attended his uh, local church, in fact, the same church he was driving to in this very moment. One of the people at that bus stop was old Mrs. Fletcher. She was a sweet old lady. She was really kind of slowing down with age, but she still insisted on getting herself to church each and every uh, week rather than being a burden on uh, others. All of this in spite of her worsening arthritis, which David knew was always... Uh, worse in wet weather because she had told him so on a number of occasions. There was also Dr. Jones, the local physician. Uh, David actually owed his life to Dr. Jones, quite literally. You see, several years back, uh, Dr. Jones had diagnosed and uh, successfully treated a rare and dangerous parasitic infection that David had contracted while on vacation in the tropics. And the third person sitting there that day was Julia. Julia had just joined the church six months prior, and she had really caught David's eye. He had a bit of a crush on Julia. Uh, she seemed to kind of like him, too. They had chatted on several occasions, but David hadn't yet had the opportunity or, quite frankly, the courage to, uh, to take the next step and to ask Julia out. And so David knew all three of these people waiting there at the bus stop in the rain that day. And as he waited for the traffic light to turn green that morning, he knew he had to stop. He, he wanted to stop, but who was he going to pick up? He had room in his car for only one of them in his little two-seat car, and he had only a few seconds to decide what to do. And so when the light turned green, he accelerated ahead of the car next to him. He changed lanes rather assertively and swerved up to the curb right in front of the three of them at this bus stop in the rain. And at this point, he had decided exactly what he was going to do. He knew what he needed to do. It all, uh, it all happened rather quickly, but he got out of his car. He tossed his keys to Dr. Jones. He said, here, you drive. And then he turned to old Mrs. Fletcher and very matter-of-factly propped her up on her feet and moved her quite intentionally toward the passenger side of his car, and he lowered her in the passenger, into the passenger seat of his vehicle. And after shutting the passenger side door, he stepped back with a rather gleeful look on his face, and he waved goodbye to the two of them. And then he proceeded himself to huddle up under that single umbrella next to Julia, in the back of his mind, praying earnestly that the number 65 bus that morning would be later than usual. Now, the reason I share this story with you today is because I want it to remind you and I of something we've been seeing in uh, the book of Judges so far, and something we're going to see uh, today, too, and that is a certain tension, a remarkable and mysterious tension between God's sovereign control over his creation and our freedom as created human beings to make choices and decisions that, that actually matter. 
The scriptures are quite clear that God is in control of all things. He is sovereign over history. He is sovereign over humanity. He is sovereign over you and I and our individual lives and everything that happens in them. He is, he is sovereign over the flip of a coin, we're told, in Proverbs chapter 16. And yet at the very same time, the scriptures also make quite clear that every person on this planet makes real and responsible choices with very real consequences. And so as David pulled up to that stoplight, you might say that God's sovereignty could be seen in the, the circumstances that David came across that day, right? The rain, the, the bus stop, the three people that he knew sitting there. But as we also saw, David had some choices to make, didn't he? Real choices with real consequences. And the choice that he made, it, it mattered. As we move through Judges chapters 10 to 12 today and, and the story of an unlikely uh, deliverer named Jephthah, I hope to show you how these two theological themes, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, are held together. They're held together in, in balance and in tension, and they highlight something important for us, I believe, in this narrative. We're going to see that God is orchestrating His plans and purposes at every turn, even though we can't always see what He's doing. And yet as humans, as human beings, we are not robots. We have real parts to play. Our decisions and our actions, they, they matter. The Bible, in fact, gives us this incredible sense that God can, can leave us, even as sinful human beings, to make real and responsible choices for ourselves and yet somehow still accomplish His purposes through us and in spite of us. That's how big our God is. And if we're going to move through the Christian life together in a balanced way and in a, a biblical way, we need to, we need to take ho hold of, of both of these realities. And so we're going to talk about that day, uh, today. And as we do, as we do, the first thing I'd like to draw out of this passage has to do with a, uh, a certain pattern. We've seen a familiar pattern, in fact, several times now in the journey through the book of Judges. And the pattern begins each time, quite predictably, with God's people over time, forgetting Him, forgetting the Lord, turning their backs on Him, and looking instead to the culture around them to give shape and to give meaning to their lives rather than looking to uh, their God for these things. And we see this pattern beginning again in Judges chapter 10, verse 6. It says there, it says, Then the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They worshipped the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, Sidon, and Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites and the Philistines. It says they abandoned the Lord their God and did not worship Him. And so God's people, they have choices. They have real choices that come with uh, real consequences. And in this chapter, the people of God have uh, very much hit a new low point in this uh, downward spiral of sin that we've been seeing in the book of Judges. We see them turning not just to one or two substitutes for God, uh, for God, but to seven different false gods of the surrounding culture. God's people have essentially become no different than the culture around them in terms of what they're uh, worshiping and what they're serving with their lives. And we see the consequences of their choices in verses 7 to 9. It says, So the Lord's anger burned against them, and He sold them to the Philistines and the Ammonites, they shattered and crushed the Israelites that year, 
And for 18 years they did the same to all the Israelites who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim. Israel was greatly oppressed. And so God's anger we see here was provoked. It was provoked by His people and by the ways that they were living. And God gave them over, it says. He sold them. It sold, he sold them, it says. And when you, when you sell something, it means the new owner can do with them whatever he or she pleases. And that's what the Ammonites and Philistines did. It says they crushed and oppressed the Israelites for, for 18 years. Now, to be clear, each time the Lord does this, when we look back at how God sold the Israelites before in, in this book of Judges, we've seen it multiple times up till now, and how he, he gives them over to their enemies, we know this does not mean that He abandoned them altogether or that He uh, nullified His promises to them, and we're going to see that. It does mean, however, that He in some way removes His presence from them. He removes His provision from them. He stops protecting them in some ways. He, he allows the things that they've been serving and worshiping to actually begin to uh, dominate and own them. And this domination and this ownership went on for 18 years. They were living uh, with the consequences of their actions until we see them finally crying out to the Lord in Judges chapter 10, verse 10. It says there, they cried out to the Lord, we have sinned against you, we have abandoned our God and worshiped the Baals. And a couple verses later, they say, Lord, please help us, rescue us today, get us out of this. And so we've seen this before, right, this pattern. We've seen Israel's uh, apostasy, their abandonment of their God, leading them directly into bondage until they can take it no more, and they cry out to the Lord for help. And every other time in the book of Judges, when uh, God's people cries out, cry, cry out to, to Him, the Lord respond, responds by raising up a deliverer, a, a Savior, to set them free. But things take a different turn this time. Look at what happens in verses 11 to 14. Look at how the Lord responds to their cries for help this time around. It says, The Lord said to the Israelites, when the Egyptians, Amorites, Ammonites, Philistines, Sidonians, Amalekites, and Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, did I not deliver you from them? But you have abandoned me and worshipped other gods. Therefore, I will not deliver you again. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them deliver you whenever, whenever you are oppressed, the Lord says. And so... This is a very sobering scene, I believe, for us. It should be. It needs to be. God is essentially saying, uh, enough is enough. And what we find here is something we all uh, really know, but not something we always like to think about, and that is that, is that God knows a, a dead prayer when He hears one. He says, not this time, I will not deliver you again. And in verse 16, it says, the Lord became weary he became weary and impatient with this recurring pattern of his people. Up to this point, we've seen the Lord again and again raising up a deliverer in response to the cries of his people, but this time he doesn't do that, at least not yet. This time he says, you want help? Cry out to the gods you've chosen, and let's see what they will do for you. God's people, you see, they were only uh, using God to get what they wanted, and 
they were in many ways more sorry for the consequences of their sin than for the sin itself. And in acting this way, in acting this way, they were really making a mockery of God's compassion and of God's grace with their empty confessions and their cries for help. And so he says, don't look at me, not, not this time. God knows an empty prayer when he hears it. He knows false and fake repentance when he hears it too. And this is a sobering reminder for us. It can be so easy to uh, fool ourselves at times. Let's be honest, it does creep into our heads at times that because God is endlessly merciful, everything will be fine no matter what, no matter how we behave, no matter what we do. And there is a certain element of truth to that, but friends, we mustn't, we must not take advantage of the grace of God. There are real consequences to the uh, choices that we make. We see that here. We see that in our own lives too, I'm sure. If a person commits themselves to sin, and some of you today are doing that very thing in one area of your life or another, committing yourself to sin, where you're refusing to uh, stop doing, where you're refusing to do what you uh, know to be right, or you're refusing to stop doing what you know to be wrong. When you commit yourself to a course of sin in that sort of way, you're on very dangerous ground. Maybe it's in a relational area where you're refusing to extend grace and forgiveness to another. Maybe it's a professional area where your actions are not above board, ethically uh, speaking. Maybe it's in a sexual area where you keep crossing that line again and again. And I'm not saying that you or anyone else can exhaust God's mercy and God's forgiveness. That's not possible. But the danger is that before you know it, you get to the point where you have no inclination to even go to Him for, uh, for mercy or for forgiveness anymore. It's true, you won't exhaust God's forgiveness. You can't, but you may very well kill off your own repentance if you're not careful. That can and does happen. That's what sin does. It hardens your heart and it makes you eventually not care. And that's what God said about his people's empty cries for help in this passage. Essentially, he says, you don't even really care. And if that's the case, why should I, why should I even bother with you? And so, friends, is there an area of sin in your life that you're minimizing or dismissing or caring less and less about? If the answer is yes, then sin is hardening your heart. And I want to uh, warn you, you're in a very dangerous place. And so don't give up. Don't give in to it. Keep fighting. Keep caring. Keep crying out. Keep confessing. Keep pressing into community. Keep bringing it into the light, all from a posture of humility and weakness and need. How do you need to turn to God today and to be honest with Him? How do you need to be honest with yourself? Let's not try to fool ourselves about these things because we're not fooling Him. God had grown weary with His people in chapter 10, and from here on out, He actually goes silent. He kind of uh, fades into the background of this story. He doesn't go absent by any means because we'll see He remains committed to His people and to His promises. But let's watch Him at work, making things happen from behind the scenes in ways that only He can through this most unlikely deliverer named Jephthah. 
And as we move from chapter 10 into chapter 11, we see there was a certain urgency to a situation that was uh, developing there. The Israelites, you see, they had no leader. And the Ammonites, the enemy, they uh, were told in verse 17, they were moving in, they were preparing uh, to attack, really to uh, further tighten the screws of oppression uh, on the people of Israel who were living in this place called Gilead. And in Judges chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, we're introduced to the man who would become the next leader of, this, of the people of this region known as Gilead. And listen, listen to what we're told about this guy. It says, Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but, but he was the son of a prostitute, and Gilead was his father. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when they grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you will have no inheritance in our father's family because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Then some worthless men joined Jephthah and went on raids with him. And so can you imagine a more unpromising person to be used by God to accomplish his plans and purposes in this world? Illegitimate son of a prostitute, rejected and despised by his own family, driven out of his hometown, leader of a gang of outlaw thugs. Surely that can't be right, can it? Continuing in verse 4, sometime later the Ammonites fought against Israel. When the Ammonites made war with Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. They said to him, come, be our commander, and let's fight the Ammonites. Jephthah replied to the elders of Gilead, didn't you hate me and drive me out of my father's family? Why then have you come to me now when you're in trouble? They answered Jephthah, that is true, but now we turn to you. Come, fight with, come with us, fight the Ammonites, and you will become leader of all the inhabitants of Gilead. And so Jephthah said to them, if you are bringing me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me, I will be your leader, he says. Now, <clears throat> in the prior stories of the book of Judges, we've seen God choosing and raising up deliverers for his people. But here, here in this case, we see God's people kind of kind of doing that for themselves. We, we don't see them praying to God. We don't see them seeking God or asking God for, for help and for uh, guidance in choosing their new leader. No, they take matters into their own hands. They, they appoint their own new leader. This Jephthah, who they chose, though, he, he knew the Lord at some level, it seems. He had a certain faith in God. In verse 9, he says, "'If the Lord gives the Ammonites to me, "'then I will be your leader.'" And so Jephthah, in a way, was looking for God's hand in all this. A couple of verses later, we're told that the people of Israel, they made Jephthah their leader and their commander. Again, no real seeking God, no real uh, looking for God by the people of God during this process at all, but they installed Jephthah as their new leader. And interestingly, we're told that the first thing Jephthah did as the leader of these people, the Gileadites, was not to fight though he was known as a fighter and a scrappy one at that, but he didn't come out swinging. He came out, he came out appealing. He came out appealing to the king of the Ammonites to, to listen to him and to negotiate with him. In fact, in Judges chapter 11, verse 12, all the way down to verse 28, you're, uh, you're essentially reading a letter there written by Jephthah and sent by messenger to the king of the Ammonites. 
And we don't have time to read it all or unpack it all, but in that letter, Jephthah, he lays out a very cogent and very persuasive argument to the, to the Ammonite king. He's seeking in every way to, to broker some sort of peace deal with him. And he lays out historical arguments. He lays out theological arguments. He lays out legal arguments. Jephthah, in fact, shows here that he is an extremely shrewd thinker and uh, negotiator. Now, at the end of the day, we're told in verses 27 and 28 that the Ammonite king, he was not listening. He would not listen to uh, Jephthah. He was not persuaded by Jephthah's line of reasoning or his arguments. But listen to Jephthah's parting remarks to the king in verse 27 in that letter. We again see Jephthah's faith in God coming into view as he, as he says to the Ammonite king, he says, okay then, let the Lord who is the judge decide today between the Israelites and the Ammonites. Let the Lord, who is the judge, decide today. And then in the very next verse, verse 29, look at what happens. The Lord, uh, who had said enough is enough and who had been in the background as the elders of, of Gilead took matters into their own hands, the Lord shows up anyway. The Lord shows up for his people in spite of his people because that's what he does. Listen to what happens next, beginning in verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, who traveled through Gilead and Manasseh, and then through Mizpah of Gilead. He crossed over to the Ammonites from Mizpah of Gilead. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you, in fact, hand over the Ammonites to me, whoever comes out the doors of my house to greet me when I return safely from the Ammonites will belong to the Lord, and I will offer that person as a burnt offering. Now, that's a very strange and troubling thing he just said, and we're going to talk about that. We need to talk about that, and we're going to come back to that in a moment. But first, let's see what happens in verses 32 and 33. Verse 32, Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord handed them over to him. He defeated 20 of their cities with a great slaughter from Aroer, all the way to the entrance of Mineth and to abel Karamim. So the Ammonites, it says, were subdued before the Israelites. And so after 18 years of being crushed and oppressed and shattered by the Ammonites, it says they were subdued because of the single spirit-empowered deliverer, the Savior named Jephthah. And one thing we mustn't miss here, we're covering three chapters today, Judges chapters uh, 10, 11, and 12, 73 verses total. And the triumph of the Lord and the deliverance of his people, it comes to us in only two short verses, verses 32 and 33. The Lord shows up here and then he seemingly fades into the background again. We don't really see the Lord again, not overtly anyways, uh, for the rest of this narrative and so with each cycle of judges in this book we've been journeying through, sin seems to be looming larger and larger. The triumph of the Lord did come, but what we see and what we'll continue to see is how the, the triumph of God in this book is becoming increasingly overshadowed by the tragedy of sin. I think this is the author's intent. In fact, a theological point is being made but even if that's the case, we nevertheless see God working through human sin and in spite of human sin to get done what he wants to get done, which in this case is the deliverance of his people from their enemies, the Ammonites. 
And so let's talk about that a bit. Let's talk first about how we see God's sovereignty in the work and in the life of, uh, at work in the life of Jephthah and, and the victory he provides. And then let's talk about human, human responsibility and how Jephthah had to face the very devastating consequences of, of some of the choices that he made along the way. First, God's sovereignty in the life of Jephthah. As we've talked about with Jephthah, he did not immediately appear to be the most suitable candidate to be a savior, a deliverer for the Lord and for God's people. Can you imagine a more questionable background for one who would go on to be uh, empowered by God and used by God to accomplish for God the very rescue of his people? Son of a prostitute, a, a product of a deeply dysfunctional family, rejected and despised and it's quite natural for many of us to, to write off a guy like Jephthah on the front end, right? But friends, if that's the way you tend to think, then you're not reckoning rightly with, with God's sovereignty and how it often works itself out in the lives of God's people. Because you see, all the difficulty and the darkness of Jephthah's past would ultimately serve as God's providential training ground for Jephthah's future, Jephthah does not simply rise to be judge in spite of his rejection and suffering. No, he is uh, uniquely suited for his role through his past and uh, because of his past. This guy was unplanned, unwanted, unloved. And from a very young age, he would have been hardened, don't you think, as the stigma surrounding his birth uh, was thrown in his face and as he had no real place in the community. No one he could trust. Can you imagine the psychological effects, the, the social and economic effects and hardships that he faced with neither parent loving him or protecting him? But he persevered. He learned from a young age how to survive. Eventually, he developed into a very seasoned leader, a, a shrewd negotiator and a valiant fighter to one who would eventually command the respect of many that's why the Gileadites came to him in the first place and recruited him in the first place. This guy had become a powerful man. He was an influential leader. This man came to understand something about leadership the hard way. He knew how these other dispossessed men operated because he was one of them too. And so he was able to forge a loyal and devoted following by these men centered on himself. If Jephthah had been raised in the comfort and the ease of a of a quiet little house in the country, he never would have become the man that he became. But in the providence of God, Jephthah's background and Jephthah's life prepared him and qualified him for what was to come. And so here is God's man, God's deliverer, prepared through the rough and difficult experiences of life to do a rough and difficult job when the time came. And that's what he did. Let us be reminded of a couple of things here. First, when we're thinking rightly about God and His sovereignty, you and I, we need to understand clearly that we cannot ever write anyone off. God can use anybody He wants to do His work. He can lay hold of any human heart, and He can use every, every bit of a person's life and a person's past to prepare them to serve His purposes in this world. So we must never write others off. God doesn't. And so how are you forgetting this truth today? Who have you perhaps written off? Would you have written Jephthah off? 
But also, we must not only not write others off, we must never write ourselves off either. Friends, please don't don't ever allow your setbacks or your disadvantages in life to disqualify you or hold you back from serving God because in the providence of God, the providence of God is such that He has something for each and every one of us to do, something that is a delight to Him and something that is unique to you. The sovereignty of God reminds us that there are no accidents. Everything counts. He is working uh, all things together. So don't write yourself out of God's script. Be available. I know at times in your past, and perhaps even right now as you're sitting here, you may feel that you've disappointed God or offended God or caused Him to grow weary with you. But please don't ever think that you've surprised Him or thwarted Him or that you could be of no use to him right now because of those things. Don't let your past taunt you or torture you or or plunge you into despair. Rather, we need to see that all of our life circumstances up till now have been under his sovereign control and he's working all things together even even when we can't see how and even when it may not feel like he is. And I know it to be true that you may not understand why God has allowed certain things to happen to you. I know I don't. We simply can't see the whole picture and we need real humility. We need humility and deep faith as we come into the contact, come into contact with certain things in this life. But imagine the questions Jephthah must have been asking of himself along the way, that he must have been asking God as well, why me? Why was I dealt this hand? Why the son of a prostitute? Why rejected and despised? Why this? Why that? But he pressed on, he persevered, and so must we, even when we don't understand, even when life throws us a curveball, and even when we're knocked down by an errant pitch at times, we must cling tightly to the truths of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that God is working all things together for the ultimate good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Those are the Apostle Paul's words there, you probably know. And imagine some of the questions the Apostle Paul must have struggled with too. Lord, look what I've done. I've killed and tortured and persecuted your people. Surely I've done too much damage against you to now do good for you. Paul, he didn't let his past disqualify him. In fact, God in his sovereignty presented the early church with a a stunning testimony to the power of God in this man, uh, Paul, who had hated and persecuted and killed Christians, and yet this same man was transformed in a moment's time into the most zealous apostle for Christ. And Paul didn't look back. He didn't let his past taunt him or torture him, though he could have. No, we see his personal approach, which I think should be our personal approach too. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 to 14, where Paul says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind And straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God had not written Jephthah out of his script. He had not written Paul out of his script. And he hasn't written uh, you or I out of his script either. He was sovereign over Jephthah. He was sovereign over Paul. And he's sovereign over us too. And so do you believe that? Do you believe that today? The more you truly believe that, the deeper you believe that, the more joy, the more peace, and the more worship you will have in your life. 
This is why Charles Spurgeon would say the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. So God's got this. He's got you. He's got your life. He's got your family. He's got your future. And so won't you believe that today? But as I say that, at the very same time, what Jephthah did and what you do and what I do, it it matters. There are consequences to our choices. The Bible is quite clear on this. This passage is quite clear on this too. It's not either God's sovereignty or human responsibility. It is both. And what we're going to see here as we turn as we turn a very dark corner in this story of Jephthah is that while God was sovereign over Jephthah's life, preparing and using him to complete a certain mission that God had for him, Jephthah was at the very same time not some sort of uh, puppet for God. When Jephthah was empowered by the Spirit, as with the other judges we've seen up till now, having the Spirit come upon them too, this does, of course, affirm Yahweh's involvement in the empowerment of that person, that is to be sure, but it does not guarantee necessarily anything at all about the spiritual condition of the recipient, and it also does not mean that Yahweh overwhelms that person's personality or their actions either. No, with Jephthah, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, verse 29, and led him to victory over the Ammonites, but Jephthah also along the way made certain choices and and behaved in certain ways that did not honor God at all and that had devastating consequences for himself and for those around him. It is very tragic, in fact, that almost immediately after the Spirit of the Lord Lord comes comes upon Jephthah, that the flow of this entire narrative that should have been moving toward the climax of God's victory was completely disrupted and derailed by this, this vow that Jephthah made in verse 30. Did you hear that vow earlier, Jephthah's vow? It's an unthinkable vow, really. Let's read it again, verses 30 to 31. Jephthah made this vow to the Lord. If, in fact, you hand over the Ammonites to me, whoever comes out the doors of my house to greet me when I return safely from the Ammonites will belong to the Lord, and I will offer that person as a burnt offering. And so that's very troubling. That's very disturbing. Jephthah says, God, if you do this for me, if you hand the Ammonites over to me, I'll do something for you too. You give me victory and I will sacrifice as an offering to you, whoever comes out of my house to greet me when I return home in victory. And we know that God did give him victory. God handed over the Ammonites to him. And so So can you imagine the scene as Jephthah is returning home, head held high, shoulders back, savoring the victory that he just just had? And I have no idea who he expected to come out of his house to greet him on his return. Maybe, Maybe a servant, maybe somebody else. But to his horror, listen to what happens beginning in verse 34. When Jephthah went to his home in Mizpah, there was his, his daughter coming out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. She was his only child. He had no other son or daughter besides her. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, No, not my daughter. You have devastated me. 
You have brought great misery on me. I have given my word to the Lord and cannot take it back. Then she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, for the Lord brought vengeance on your enemies, the Ammonites. She also said to her father, Let me do this one thing. Let me wander two months through the mountains with my friends and mourn my virginity. Go, he said, and he sent her away two months. She left with her friends and mourned her virginity as she wandered through the mountains. At the end of the two months, she returned to her father, and he kept the vow that he had made about her. And so this is a tragic and terrible story, perhaps the worst in what is an increasingly tragic and terrible part of Israel's history. And many questions are raised by this part of the passage. Why in the world would Jephthah make such a vow? What was he possibly thinking? His own scriptures would have told him in Deuteronomy chapter 12 that human sacrifice was detestable to the Lord, something, something the Lord hated. Jephthah would have known this was the case if Jephthah had been familiar with God's clearly stated position on the matter, but he was not. And there were certain ways, according to the very same scriptures, to vacate a vow after it had been made. Again, if, if you were familiar with the scriptures, which he wasn't. If Jephthah had been well-versed in the scriptures, you see, he could have spared his daughter's life. But what seems to be clear is that he was not, not well-versed in the scriptures. Many commentators, in fact, believe that Jephthah made this vow to God in large part because he did not understand the character of God. He had a certain faith in God. We know that to be true. We've already seen that. But it would seem that Jephthah, though he had faith in God, his doctrine about God was, was entirely out of whack. It was deficient and defective. You see, he was living in a very pluralistic culture, not unlike our own, and that culture around him had very much shaped his views about God, and not, not in a positive way, not in an accurate way. And you actually see a little glimpse of that in chapter 11, verse 10, in the letter that I told you about earlier, the, the letter that Jephthah wrote to the uh, king of the Ammonites trying to broker a peace deal. In that letter, in verse 24, Jephthah says to the king of the Ammonites, isn't it true that you can have whatever your god, Chemosh, conquers for you? And we can have whatever the Lord our God conquers for us. And so in Jephthah's mind, the God of Israel was no different really than the various gods of the surrounding culture, a culture where violence was the norm, a culture where human sacrifice was not uncommon, and where, the, where a works-based relationship to their gods was how, was how everybody seemed to operate. Ultimately, Jephthah was looking to negotiate with God when he made that vow because he thought that's how it worked. I do this for you and you do this for me. He seemed to have no concept of a God of grace. He saw God as basically like the pagan gods whose favor could be earned through, through flattery or through lavish sacrifices. And when he obviously realizes that his rash vow has trapped him in verse 35, why doesn't he simply confess it as sinful foolishness and break the vow and save his daughter because, you see, he didn't know his God. He didn't know if he could completely uh, trust this God, and he was trapped by his own mistrust. Uh, 
Maybe he believed that God would strike him down if he didn't hold up his end of the deal. And if that's the case, this is the very same works righteousness view of God, isn't it, that led him to make that vow in the first place. Friends, this is a most vivid example of how believers can profess faith in God and hold on to some limited amount of truth about God and yet allow the world to nevertheless squeeze them into its mold. Jephthah allowed all of these outside attitudes and influences to come in and to live alongside his already limited knowledge of his God, and that's a dangerous, dangerous mix. Today, we're more likely to let worldly attitudes about things like our sexuality or power or money uh, come in and live alongside our belief in God, and we must be very careful with this. Friends, our theological accuracy is important. It is essential, in fact, because ignorance and error on these matters can be devastating. The error of Jephthah, which made the worship of Yahweh equal to the worship of the false gods of his culture, was a fatal error for him. And an error, in fact, that remains quite prevalent to this very day. Do you ever hear those errors around you? In a study published just last month, 51% of self-identified evangelical Christians said they agreed with the statement that God accepts the worship of all religions. Does that sound off to you? I hope so, because Jesus seemed pretty clear when he said, nobody, nobody comes to the Father but through me in John chapter 14. 78% of the same group of people, self-identified evangelicals agreed with the statement that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God the Father. Does that sound off to you at all? I hope it does. In the same study, 53% of people asked agreed with the statement that most people, most people are good by nature, though everyone sins a little bit. Many megachurch Pastors of mainline Christian denominations in recent months and years have been telling uh, their congregations and telling the world that Jesus is just one of many paths to God and that the idea that you're uh, going to hell if you don't believe in Jesus is ludicrous and not what Jesus even believed. Friends, these are serious matters. These things matter greatly. And to believe those things that I just said, those things uh, that were part of that survey, to, to fall prey to those sorts of errors, it, it requires, it requires that you either don't know your Bible or you don't take your Bible seriously. It's one or the other, or perhaps both. But we intend here at the Hallows Church to know our Bibles well, to take our Bibles seriously, our our theological accuracy matters because there is much at stake. Lives are at stake, not in the same way exactly as Jephthah's daughter, of course, but lives and souls are at stake in this. That's why gospel clarity and biblical fidelity are two of our core values as a people and as a church to combat these cultural narratives, these very false teachings, which, which is what they are, and to and to understand our God and his gospel as he's revealed them to us rather than what our culture is trying to tell, uh, say to us. Jephthah was responsible for the choices he made. He was responsible for his own 
decisions, and he was responsible ultimately for his own doctrine, and we are too. And so let's, let's be responsible together in staying tightly tethered to the truths of God's word and not being tossed to and fro by the cultural currents of our day. In this story of Jephthah, we've seen the triumph of God's sovereignty held in remarkable balance with what is at times the tragedy of human freedom and the sin that flows from it. And a life of faith for you and I needs to hold both of these truths, both of these realities in their proper balance and in tension with one another. As we take hold of human responsibility, we know that we, uh, what we do matters. Everything counts. We make real and responsible choices, and our real choices come with, come with real consequences, not only for ourselves, but for, for those around us too. And as we take hold of God's sovereignty, we can be grateful for every blessing that we have, knowing they come from a God who loves us. We can be patient in hard times, knowing God is in control and he will work all things together ultimately. We know that even when we can't see the whole picture, our ultimate future and our ultimate fate could not be in any better, any safer, any wiser, any more loving hands than they already are. It's a remarkable thing to consider God's undeniable, his unstoppable sovereignty being expressed and accomplished through our meaningful freedom and through the choices that we make. He's big enough to let us make very real choices and yet still accomplish his purposes through our choices and in spite of our choices. And do you know where the convergence of God's sovereignty and human responsibility happened in the most profound of ways? It happened at the cross, didn't it? If you ever want to bend your mind a bit, stare at Acts chapter 2, verse 23 for a while. In that single verse, you see a fascinating convergence of these two truths. You've got Peter saying to the Jewish religious leaders, uh, you killed Jesus, you're responsible for this. You, you crucified and killed him, you sinful and lawless men. Human responsibility, right? But in the very same breath, in the very same verse, in fact, Peter says that this same Jesus whom, whom you crucified was, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God's sovereignty and human responsibility, they're, they're both there in that single verse. And friends, you have to be very, very powerful to have your enemies accomplishing your plans for you while they're intending to act against you. That's what went down at the cross. Our God, he took the most evil act in all human history, and he used it. He he flipped it, and he turned it into the most beautiful. That's the God that we worship. So let's do that now. Please pray with me.